Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Hello, I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. And our story today takes us to New Orleans, Louisiana in June of 1973. A fireball shoots across the wooden floor of the upstairs lounge consuming everything in its way and claiming its first unlucky victims. The fire is hungry, battling through the bar with force, and within seconds, the entire establishment is ablaze. And just like that, what was once a room full of joyous laughter and song erupts into pure panic and chaos. Patrons stumble left and right, blinded by smoke, their clothes on fire, as they attempt to escape the fiery inferno that once served as their place of refuge. Some manage to make their way outside, covered in soot and burns, many do not. Sixteen minutes later, when the fiery monster has been extinguished and the screams subside, 29 people are left dead, burned alive. Three more die later in the hospital. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Yeah, that's right. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and the complexities of these unfortunate situations, whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. Today's case contains many different factors to take into account and is certainly up for debate, but we'll get into all of that in just a little bit. And Sadia, I think today's case was actually suggested by a listener. Is that right? It was, Asad. But before I get into that, I want to say hi to our youngest listener. Hi, Isha. How are you doing? You, you can probably tell that Isha, my daughter, who is now uh, four months old, is here today. I'm I'm the caregiver at home today, and, and she is here joining and giving her opinions on whether this case is a hate crime or not. <laughs> so going back to what you said, I said, yes, it is correct. Today's case was in fact suggested by one of our incredible listeners, which is really exciting. Kat Alvarado suggested this case. And listeners, if you have any suggestions, please do write to us. You can even ping us on Instagram because we check it 
very regularly. And we'd love receiving suggestions from all of you. We appreciate hearing what you are interested in and learning about cases that we may otherwise be unaware of. Absolutely. Let's get into it, Sadia. There are so many interesting, intricate details that you already said. It seems a bit complicated. Can you tell us a little about what happened? So uncovering some of the specific details of this case is a little bit challenging as the upstairs lounge fire occurred 50 years ago back in 1973, meaning that there is less archival information than there is for more recent cases that we've done so far. On top of that, the upstairs lounge was a gay bar during a time when being gay was incredibly taboo. So in many ways, this tragedy was treated with shame and essentially swept under the rug, which is so sad. With, by the way, limited media coverage, particularly with regards to the investigation and the aftermath of the fire. Right. So as a result, we are essentially relying on various accounts from survivors, emergency responders and others involved in the crisis at the time, which have been pieced together in more recent years by some really dedicated historians and journalists seeking to shed light on this horrific, horrific incident. Yeah, sadly, it's, you know, 1973, obviously, before iPhones and cell phones and blogs and and all that kind of stuff. So really relying on, I'm guessing, newspaper, local newspapers and personal eyewitnesses and people that were there, right? And so, yeah, that's really cool, really interesting. Love to get into it a little bit more. It's 5 p.m. on June 24, 1973, and a crowd of about 90 to 120 patrons, most of whom are members of the LGBTQ plus community, have gathered in the upstairs lounge for the gay bar's weekly beer bust event. Every Sunday, patrons fill the lounge from 5 to 7 p.m. for two hours of fun socialization accompanied by all-you-can-drink draft beer for just one dollar. Oh, sounds like a great deal. It does, as it. Not that I know how much beer should cost because I don't <laughs> yeah, drink beer. Same, I don't, I don't either, but it seems like a beer for a dollar uh, seems like a good deal, even in 1973. Right. Anyways, hidden away on the second floor of a building located on Iberville Street in the French Quarter of New Orleans, the bar serves as a refuge for members of the LGBTQ community. Same-sex acts had been illegal in Louisiana since 1805, forcing members of this community to remain in the closet in the public sphere. That's really interesting. Salia, like I, I don't think as America, you know, in that in that time period is being so homophobic that they're writing laws against it. I mean, I would imagine that that it is, you know, that there is a lot of homophobia around, but it knows like to the point where they were actually writing laws about it. That, that's really interesting to me. You're absolutely right, Asad. Although there were laws, as Robert Fiesler explains in his book, Tenderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation, New Orleans was unique in that if you remained discreet and if you appeared to be a God-fearing Christian, your homosexual behavior, mafia involvement, illegal gambling, prostitution, or drug use would be tolerated. Wow. Asit, this quote itself is so problematic to me and we could have a whole 
podcast episode around it. But yeah, that's what was happening at the time. Yeah, this is really interesting. I mean, we've done obviously a lot of cases about um, gay people being targeted or that community, but we haven't done any cases about the mafia or gamblers right. uh, or others. Maybe that's something we need to look into. But exactly. Very interesting. So as a result, in 1973, the New Orleans LGBTQ plus community was largely underground or two stories above the ground in case of the upstairs lounge. Here's a survivor, Ricky Everett, describing the scene at that time. It was actually my favorite place to be because I just felt comfortable there. A lot of really great people from different, different walks of life. We had just regular working class people. We had doctors, lawyers, teachers. Everybody was just a, a regular Joe, so to speak. Oh, this is so interesting. So this bar really served as a really important place for the LGBT community in New Orleans, it looks like. Absolutely, Asad. And that's not all. The lounge also served as a gathering space for the local metropolitan community church, the first openly gay Protestant Christian denomination in the United States, established by Reverend Troy Perry. Perry had founded the church in 1968 in Los Angeles after being unable to find a church to attend as a gay man. How incredible is that, Asad? That's interesting. That's really that's really cool. So the New Orleans branch of the MCC often held services in the small theater at the back of the upstairs lounge and used the bar for various other social and religious events. So it's the night of June 24, 1973. The church has just finished a worship service in the back room of the lounge and many of its members, including Pastor Bill Larson and Assistant Pastor Duane George Mitchell, have remained in the bar, joining several others for the beer past. The night is full of celebration and joy as the patrons drink, laugh and socialize with one another. Someone sits down at the piano in the corner and soon the bar has erupted into song belting out a series of Broadway tunes. At 7 p.m. toward the end of the beer bust, many of those still in the bar gather around the piano in a circle and holding hands sing the Brotherhood of Man's hit, United We Stand, a song that had in many ways come to represent gay solidarity. Then at around 7.30 p.m., a young 26-year-old gay hustler named Roger Dale Nunes enters the bar. According to an ABC News interview with Robert Fiesler, Nunes is not particularly popular and an awkward silence comes over the bar as soon as he enters. Nunes is already incredibly drunk and within minutes he begins to cause trouble in the upstairs lounge, breaking a time-honored rule of the bar by trying to hustle one of the clients. Bartender Buddy Rasmussen confronts Nunes and before long there is a heated, loud discussion occurring between Rasmussen, Nunes and others. When asked to leave, an altercation ensues and a fight breaks out between Nunes and another customer 
ending with Nunez getting punched in the face, his jaw broken. He is then physically ejected by Rasmussen and as he's being removed, he angrily screams. And listeners, pay attention to this. I'm going to burn you all out. Wow, crazy. Okay, so let me just get this out of here. So this guy, Roger Nunez, comes to the bar where family atmosphere, all, all you know, this community that's been gathering for five years. He comes in, he's kind of the awkward one, and he's already drunk, and he's causing trouble. And then the bartender basically is like, get the hell out. And then a fight breaks out, and he gets punched in the face. And as he's leaving, he's like, I'm going to burn this place down, basically. That's what's happening? Exactly. I said, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. And I feel like, you know, we've seen this scene in a movie somewhere, right? You're absolutely right. And I'm trying to think which movies have we seen this scene in. A lot of movies, I feel like that's a, a common occurrence, right? Where someone yells and then leaves and then, yeah. But here's the thing, I said, because the bar is so loud, only a few select individuals hear Nunez's threat. But I'm sure many others witnessed the argument and physical altercation because that's pretty physical, right? It's visible. Generally speaking, though, people don't seem particularly concerned. And once Nunez has been kicked out, customers move on with their nights, returning to their cheerful socialization, song and beer. However, such cheer is short-lived. Just before 8 p.m., the buzzer at the entrance of the bar goes off. The crowd has thinned over the past hour and around 60 patrons now remain in the bar. Buddy, the bartender, sends patron Luther Boggs to get the door. Boggs opens the door at the bar's entrance to find the wooden staircase doused in lighter fluid and engulfed in red hot flames. Crazy. Before anyone can react, the fireball shoots into the lounge, feeding on the highly flammable decor and immediately consuming many of the individuals singing show tunes around the piano. Here's Ricky Everett again describing the horror of this situation. All of a sudden there was like, I saw this big glow coming in through the doorway and then I started seeing the flames and it's just like, all of a sudden it just like went across the bar. The lights suddenly go out and smoke fills the room, inciting a claustrophobic smoke blindness. The bar erupts into chaos as 60 terrified, intoxicated individuals scream blindly through the smoke and flames, fighting to escape the massive wall of fire spreading throughout the bar. I said, this is so scary. And I cannot imagine how people would react or how I would react if I were in that situation. Honestly, this is just sad and annoying at the same time. I mean, I think your flight or fight instinct would kick in, right? And I think for some people, they would, wouldn't would know what to do and other people would just, yeah, try to get out and get away. I mean, I can't believe how quickly things happened. You know, it seems like immediately the the entire place is um, in smoke and flames. Crazy. Absolutely. And bartender Buddy Rasmussen immediately jumps into action, hopping over the bar, clicking on a flashlight and leading more than 20 patrons out the back exit and onto a neighboring rooftop where they are able to climb down to safety, which is so heroic, Asad. Imagine being in that space, being engulfed by fire and flames, and then 
thinking about others, how you can save others, that must be next level heroic. Yeah, it's really, really impressive for sure. He leads as many individuals as he can before closing the door behind him to prevent the fire from spreading. Unfortunately, Buddy is unable to save his lover, who burns to death in the lounge. The remaining individuals, unaware of the emergency exit, race to jump out of one of the three floor-to-ceiling windows, but find that they are covered by metal bars. Who would have imagined, Asad, that metal bars that were probably put there for safety could prevent them from saving themselves? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, yeah. Many attempt to squeeze through the iron bars, but only a few small individuals are able to do so sliding through bodies on fire. Pastor Bill Larson pushes an air conditioning unit through a window in an attempt to escape, but his body is trapped in the window frame. Survivors and onlookers below hear him scream, Oh God, no, as he burns to death. 16 minutes later, after firefighters have finally extinguished the blaze, they enter the building to find 29 individuals burned alive, their bodies melted and destroyed. Wow, 16 minutes. Like, I mean, this is just, again, so happened so fast and so deadly. Yeah, so exactly. According to Boston's NPR news station, WBUR, most of these victims perished within the first six minutes of the fire. So it seems like even if the firefighters arrived early, they wouldn't be able to save them. Yeah, Sadi, I think that's exactly right. I mean, six minutes, you know, I'm surprised they, if they even you know were, were out the door of the um, fire department on their way there. Like, yeah, that, that's it's so, so quick. And I said three additional people later die in the burn ward of Charity Hospital, unable to overcome their extreme injuries. Wow, Sadia, I can't believe it. 32 dead and 15 injured. I think that's so tragic and uh, just heartbreaking as well. So, Asad, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll be discussing both the victims and the public response to the fire. Welcome back to Invisible Heat. So, the upstairs lounge fire claimed the lives of 31 men and one woman. The New Orleans Metropolitan Community Church lost one-third of its congregation, including Pastor Bill Larson, who burnt alive in the window of the bar. Sadly, Asad, some families were too ashamed of their loved one's homosexuality to claim their bodies, fearing that in claiming them, they would associate themselves with such taboo behavior. Wow, sadly, I've never heard of something like this before. I, I mean, it, it makes sense, unfortunately, right? But that's crazy to me. Yeah, wow. At the end of the identification process, four white men were left unidentified and unclaimed However, according to New Orleans CBS News affiliate 4WWL, one body was soon identified as 50-year-old World War II veteran Ferris LeBlanc. After an anonymous caller informed the coroner's office that LeBlanc wore an antique ring made from a silver spoon. As a police basically made very little effort to seek out LeBlanc's next of kin, leaving him unclaimed his family unaware 
that he had died in fire. How mm. traumatizing is that, Asad? Yeah. So how long? How long was he unclaimed? Basically, they did not know about LeBlanc's death and how he died for almost four decades. Asad, can you believe it? What? Yes. No way. So, so they just thought that he was missing or disappeared? I have no clue. But we have a clip, an ABC News interview with LeBlanc's sister, and here's what she had to say. I had this recurring dream of the doorbell ringing, going to the door, and it was him. And like, where have you been all this time? It was just a mystery. We did not know for 42 years where he was. The city refused to release the four unclaimed bodies to the Metropolitan Community Church for proper burials, opting instead to bury them next to one another in a potter's field cemetery in unmarked graves. This includes LeBlanc, who had been identified. To this day, family of LeBlanc continue the search for LeBlanc's remains, receiving very little help from the city, who claims that the map of the graveyard and all other relevant records were destroyed by Hurricane Katrina in 2005. The family has determined that LeBlanc is buried in Panel Q, Lot 32, but without the map, it's hard to know where exactly that is. So here's what Skip Bailey, LeBlanc's nephew, had to say in an interview with ABC News. He's in an unmarked grave in New Orleans and it looks like a cow pasture. And that's not right. And he's a member of our family. He deserves better than that. He's a World War II veteran and he's a human being. He, he needs to be giving the right burial and a headstone and do the right thing. Wow, Sadia, that is really crazy, sad, just so inhumane. I just can't imagine. I mean, knowing that a family member is dead, that his you know, remains are somewhere in the city, but not knowing where and not giving them a proper burial, it's just, it's horrible. And, and I really hope the family is able to find him soon and give him, you know, the proper burial that he deserves. What about the other three bodies? Do we know where they are? Or have they been identified? So I said, fortunately, according to 4WWL, Larry Frost was identified in 2018. But sadly, the names of the other two victims remain a mystery. Survivors of the fire, while of course lucky to have survived, suffered a great deal as well. I said, imagine the physical trauma and then the mental trauma, which is not visible to the naked eye, right? What people go through. Yeah, survivor's guilt, right? And at the time, those who were determined to be gay or lesbian were at risk of being fired or even evicted from their apartments. Asad, how cruel is that? Yeah, I mean, you can't say that you're a victim or else you'd be worried about being discriminated. Yeah, this is 1973, I can imagine. It would be bad even now in parts of this country, but certainly in 1973, you wouldn't want to make that public. You're exactly right, Asad. Even further, according to the New York Public Library podcast, Library Talks, if one's home was declared a house of, and I quote, ill repute, unquote, meaning a house of bad reputation in public eye, it could potentially be repossessed by the state. Oh, I had no clue that this was a, a law. So basically, if 
yeah, if the city is like, oh, gay people are there or something else nefarious, they can take your house away from you. I, I never knew that this was a law, Sadia. Oh, my gosh. I said, ah, we could talk about so many <laughs> discriminatory laws in America. We could probably <laughs> That's at least start one thing they one. haven't tried to do against us Muslims, I don't think, right? <laughs> I, I hope not in the future, too, I said. Yeah, ag- agree. Let's not jinx it. Yeah. As a result, victims of the fire had to go to work the following Monday morning and pretend as if nothing had happened. Imagine, Asad, just imagine doing that as if they hadn't just barely escaped with their lives while watching some of their closest friends burn to death. Yeah, I mean, that's less crazy. The, the amount of trauma, suffering, I mean, who knows how what they're bought, you know, the smoke inhalation, the mental anguish, all that kind of stuff. And to have to basically bury it uh, for fear of the community not supporting you or giving you you know, that time and space uh, because you are gay. I mean, just it's it's so sad and, yeah, unfortunate. And I said what's even more sad is that many of those who had suspected the culprit of the arson attack chose not to come to the police with information for fear that doing so would jeopardize their safety and well-being. So here's one of the patrons, Steve Duplantis, explaining why he didn't come forward. Stuart called me. I told him that I saw the guy and I, I, back then I probably could have recognized him. And he asked me, to, he said, well, you need to come over here and, and, and uh, uh, tell the police what you know. And I said, no way. I just felt very, very positive that had I gone back and, and made a statement, or if I would have even called them and made a statement, that they would have turned me in. It's an automatic dishonorable discharge. That hurt me for a long time, knowing what I knew, and I couldn't say anything about it. But I said some weren't even lucky to be able to protect themselves by staying silent. Several newspapers published the names of the deceased and injured in the days after the fire, outing not only 29 dead individuals whose families then had to cope with the stigma, but also several living survivors, many of whom were likely fired from their jobs, evicted from their homes, or discriminated against Asad. So this is like suffering one trauma after another. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. What is the media's role in this situation? Clearly, you know, they have to report on the fire or whatever, but is it their, I, I have to think about this, if it's their responsibility not to share the names of the victims because of the societal impact, I, I'd have to really think think hard about that. So the media certainly did not handle the situation well, Asad. And to be honest, when I think about this, it's a tricky situation, right? What would you do? How would you handle it? If you were part of the media, what would you do? I mean, obviously, we're now judging this 50 years later, right? Right. It's hard to say what one would do. I mean, you certainly would want to cover the fire, why it happened. And then, you know, I think readers would be able to connect the dots if all of a sudden people in their community were, you know, were no longer there, they would be able to connect the dots. So like, if I was a reporter or publisher at the time, I think you would have to. It would be, it'd be your obligation to list the victims. But I said the media did not stop there. 
In addition to outing many of the victims and survivors, as we discussed, several newspapers published insensitive photos that ultimately illustrate the lack of respect many victims were showing in the immediate aftermath of the fire. A gruesome photo of Reverend Bill Larson's charred corpse hanging out of the upstairs window was published for all to see Asad. Even worse, emergency responders left his body hanging out of the window for hours. Whoa, really? Still visible past midnight. How oh cruel goodness. is that, Asad? Wow. Yeah. And not surprisingly, for many members of the LGBTQ plus community, his body soon became a symbol of the city's indifference towards them. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, media coverage as a whole was sensationalized and homophobic with insensitive descriptions. And then just like that, coverage stopped altogether and the story went silent, despite the fact that the story was very much ongoing. I mean, it's really crazy. You know, you can imagine enduring this like really horrible tragedy and just barely surviving and then you have to sit there and view all this kind of homophobic coverage um, while having to pretend it doesn't bother you, you know, because, you know, you know, you fear for your safety or, you know, to protect yourself. Um, It's really crazy. And, you know, I can't get over this idea of them publishing this image. And, and, you know, I'm not opposed to publishing that kind of stuff if it really triggers the readers to really respond and grapple with it but to do it in such a way in which it's it was clearly homophobic and sensationalized is is really the problem here you know if it said you know this is what you know our community homophobia has caused right. you know that would might might have you know kickstarted a conversation right it's really tough to say i i, I have not seen the image and i'm i don't want to but yeah crazy sadly so I would just want to get back now on top of all this. Was it a challenge just to like plan memorial services and funerals for people that died? Yes, you're right, Asad. Most churches refused to hold services to honor the victims. Reverend Troy Perry of the Metropolitan Community Church, who had lost many members to the fire, called various churches begging, begging them to hold service for the victims as the MCC did not hold a space big enough to host a memorial. However, Asad, every church he called either ignored him or outright declined his request. Hmm. Finally, after a week of searching, St. Mark's United Methodist Church agreed to hold the memorial. On July 1st, the church held a prayer service and memorial for the victims of the upstairs lounge with almost 300 people attending. Perry promised mourners that cameras would not be allowed inside the church in an effort to protect their identities. However, several journalists and photographers waited outside the church hoping to expose closeted members of the New Orleans LGBTQ plus community. This to me is so bizarre, Asad. Like, what purpose would this achieve? I I don't understand this. I, I just can't grapple with it. Because the sole purpose is for them to get a picture 
to essentially say, you know, this person is gay or lesbian or whatever. Yeah, I mean, how horrible is that? And this wasn't because they wanted to embrace the community, Asad. It was mostly to shame the community. Of course, yeah. Sorry, that's what I yeah, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, hundred percent to to out them and and cause more strife and grief and ostracize them as well. Yeah. So given all of this, Perry offered mourners a chance to exit through a rear door so as to avoid cameras. But you know what, Asad? No one accepted this offer. And the mourners faced the media as a unified front in honor of all those who had died. Wow, that is heroic. Love it. And throughout all of this utter disrespect, Asad city officials remained silent, neglecting to address the tragedy or offer their respects to the victims and their families. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And it's really disappointing and a huge failure, but I'm really, really not surprised. You're absolutely right, Asad. We are going to take a quick break, but when we return, we will be discussing the unimpressive investigation following the fire. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, just as with the overall public response to the fire, it seems that the police response and the subsequent investigation was underwhelming and inadequate. So I'd love to know how the investigation unfolded. So it's the night of June 23rd, 1973, and bartender Buddy Rasmussen has just emerged from the burning bar with over 20 other individuals whom he has just led to safety. But Rasmussen doesn't stop there, Asad. He suspects that he knows the person responsible for the destruction of his beloved place of work and he is on a mission to find him. According to Robert Fiesler in his book, Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation, Rasmussen winds through the streets looking for Roger Nunes, the young man who had been ejected from the bar mere minutes before its demise. He runs into Mark Allen Guidry, a 19-year-old hustler who had come into the upstairs lounge with Nunez earlier that night. Gaidri directs Rasmussen towards a hustler bar on the corner of Royal and Iberville streets named Wanda's. Rasmussen spots Nunez drinking a cup of beer and immediately begins to question him while simultaneously dragging him towards a police officer. Once they've reached the officer, the bartender begins to explain the situation demanding that Nunez be held for questioning. And guess what happens, Asad? Aware of the pair's status as gay men, the police officer ignores, completely ignores Rasmussen Mm. for several minutes before telling him to move along. At last, Rasmussen releases Nunez, who stumbles a few steps away. And this happens a couple of other times, and... Roger Nunes is basically not arrested, Asad, because the police is not interested in arresting him. Wow, Sadia, this is crazy. What a horrible way to treat victims of the fire, right? Like they're just trying to offer useful information for some sort of, you know, investigation. We we all expect, especially when something like this, a huge crime that we would expect that there to be, you know, some sort of investigation. So was there, you know, did, did the police actually 
end up conducting an investigation? Was anybody ever questioned? Yes, it's sort of. So despite initially ignoring victims, the police do eventually attempt to conduct an official investigation. According to Time magazine, shortly after the fire, homicide detectives interview injured survivors at Charity Hospital, spending what they claim to be nearly 12 hours on the scene and subsequently assigning over 50 officers to the case. Yeah. So based on these interviews, the police have two prime suspects. The first is a teenager named David Dupose, who initially confesses to setting the fire but quickly recants his confession. He's later cleared after his alibi is confirmed and he passes a polygraph test. The police then focus their attention on guess who? Roger Nunes, the man who a lot of victims accused of starting the arson in the first place. Now, this is where the story becomes muddled, Asad, as the accounts start to differ a little bit, particularly in terms of timeline and location. According to a New York Public Library interview with Robert Fiesler, the author of Tinderbox, it seems that police locate Nunez in New Orleans near the upstairs lounge about a week after the fire. So he's still in the vicinity. He hasn't fled, which to me is surprising. They attempt to bring him in for questioning, but due to medical emergency, of some sort, and we don't know what that medical emergency was, Nunez is brought to the hospital instead, where police leave him unguarded. Now, here's my question to you, Asad. Why would you leave a suspect of an arson unguarded? Yeah, that I don't know. Yeah, that's a really good question. Right? Anyways, he then leaves the hospital without notifying them, returning to his hometown of April, Louisiana. The police then claim that they are unable to locate him, essentially giving up the investigation. Now, listeners, keep in mind, this is 1973. There are no cell phones. There is no way to locate people a lot of times. So that's what the police claims, too. However, while the police drop the investigation, the Louisiana State Fire Marshal's office seems far more determined to get to the bottom of this arson attack, which to me is a bit surprising, Asit, because this is what police should be doing, but they have already dropped the investigation. It seems like all the 50 officers that were on this case are probably not doing their work. And because of that, the fire marshal's office locate him, we're talking about Nunes here, in his hometown of April and bring him to New Orleans to be questioned. And here is an interview with Butch Browning, who was state fire marshal at the time, explaining. Our office administered a polygraph exam uh, that this individual was, was found to be deceptive in. So when they bring him in for questioning Asad, most of Nunes' answers show signs of stress And although the fire marshal's office has already established that he is the prime suspect, they let him go for the time being, maybe hoping that police will follow up. But unfortunately, police never follow up when the fire marshal's office eventually compiles their report and gives it to the New Orleans Parish DA, claiming that they believe Nunes set the fire. Basically, he finally, you know, is arrested or brought in 
During the questioning, he shows signs of stress that he probably is lying, but then they don't follow up. They let him go. I mean, and then the DA doesn't take the case. I mean, that's crazy. Exactly, Asad. So Nunes gets away pretty easily. According to a New York Public Library interview with author Robert Fiesler, a few months after the fire, Nunes cons a financially independent woman twice his age into marrying him, returning to his hustler ways. On their wedding night, after the marriage documents have been signed, he basically tells her that he is gay and impotent. He convinces her to let him live in her backyard trailer for several months while he figures out what his next steps are. He then begins stealing from her, passing bad checks in her name. In the same year after the fire, he confides in a nun and admits to two friends on separate occasions that he was in fact responsible for the fire. Wow, okay. Now, here's some additional piece of information that we think listeners should know, Asad. In 1970, before the arson attack, Nunes is believed to have spent time in a state mental hospital, whether this was for a legitimate mental illness or some discriminatory attempt at conversion therapy, Nunes's time there may have very well damaged him. And so, in November of 1974, about a year and a half after the fire, Nunes commits suicide with a concoction of barbiturates, his epilepsy medication and beer. His body is sent back to Abel where his family gives him a Catholic funeral and burial. At this point, with their prime suspect dead, the investigative trail officially goes cold. Yeah, that's really sad. It seems like he's struggling, you know, with a lot of issues. I noticed that he gets a funeral, but the victims uh, didn't get a funeral, you know, uh, or burial or, or, you know, had to really fight to get them. So now that we know the facts of the case, let's go to the big question. Do you think that this was a hate crime? So I said this, like some other cases that we have covered is tricky because Nunes himself is believed to have been gay as he admitted to this to his late wife and seems to have been known by many in the New Orleans LGBTQ plus community as a gay hustler. So the question then is, can a person from the same community hate crime people of that community? Oh, yeah. My answer is yes to that. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, of course they could, Asad. What if he is a self-loathing individual, right? Right. And he may have internalized guilt, shame, even homophobia, and may be struggling to grapple with his identity. Right. So we don't know what was going through his mind. But Asad, more than that, I feel like the bigger hate crime here seems to be the homophobic and inadequate public response from politicians, police officers, religious leaders, members of the press and public as a whole, right? They tried to sweep the issue under the rug and handled it horribly. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, for me, Nunez, I don't know if we'll ever really know whether it was a hate crime and he hated, you know, other gay people or just because he was angry and drunk and, you know, did something super stupid and, you know, murderous. But 
you know, I think that's exactly right, Sally. The the bigger crime here is how the public and everybody else reacted to this community and their suffering. And I think that's exactly right. That is the biggest strategy of this. Sort. Absolutely, Asad. But just to give our listeners context of hate crime laws at the time, such acts, at least in 1973, were not considered a hate crime as a Louisiana Hate Crimes Act based on actual or perceived sexual orientation, gender, race, age, religion, color, creed, disability, national origin wasn't established until 1997, Asad. In fact, in 1973, as we discussed earlier, same-sex acts were basically illegal. So, Sadly, how is this tragedy being handled today? So, Asad, in recent years, the city of New Orleans has begun to come to terms with its poor handling of the upstairs lounge fire. In June of 2013, during the 40th anniversary of the fire, New Orleans Archbishop Gregory Amund apologized for the church's handling of the situation in 1973, saying in an email, and I quote, In retrospect, if we did not release a statement, we should have to be in solidarity with the victims and their families. The church does not condone violence and hatred. If we did not extend our care and condolences, I deeply apologize." Also, as of this past June, a ceremony was held at St. Mark's United Methodist Church in New Orleans, marking 50 years since the treacherous attack. Several readings and songs were performed by the New Orleans Gay Men's Chorus. And in terms of victims, Asad, many today are still recovering from the trauma of the fire and immense discrimination that they both witnessed and experienced in the aftermath. Rasmussen now lives in Arkansas, where he lives a quiet life with his partner, Billy Duncan, growing vegetables, volunteering at food banks, and enjoying time on their back porch. Sadly, after the fire, the upstairs lounge was never restored or reopened, but as said, several other modern-day working-class gay bars with the same accepting, egalitarian, and friendly atmosphere have opened in New Orleans today. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, when I think of New Orleans, you know, I think of it as a pretty LGBTQ, you know, forward place, but maybe that's just the perception that I have. It's great that they've come to terms of with or what had happened with the fire back in 1973. Really impressive for the city, for sure. And thankfully, as of today's society is far more accepting of the LGBTQ plus community than that of the 1970s particularly in New Orleans, as you said. We know that finally in 2003, same-sex acts were federally decriminalized in the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark decision in Lawrence versus Texas, nullifying criminal statutes against same-sex acts in Louisiana and all other states. However, we know this, Asad, to this day, many people continue to discriminate against members of the LGBTQ plus community. And unfortunately, queer individuals continue to face violent acts indicating that the fight is far from over. And Asad, do you remember 2016 Pulse Night Club shooting? 
Oh, yeah, that where the, yeah, there was a, uh, a big shooting at the club. Yeah, totally in Orlando. That basically murdered 49 people. And until this shooting, Asad, the upstairs lounge fire had been the largest massacre of queer individuals in American history. And yet many people are unaware of this history, Asad, because it was basically swept under the rug and completely forgotten. But thanks to our listener, we were able to do a deep dive into this case. And that's why it's important for listeners to share their thoughts, ideas, stories with us so that we can amplify voices that need to be heard. I think that's 100% Saudi, you know, and then also there's no kind of direct way to help the victims of the upstairs lounge fire, you know, now that it's 50 years, but there are plenty of ways that you can support the protection and advancement of LGBTQ rights. We're going to include a bunch of links to places that you can donate to, including places like the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, the Point Foundation, and Lambda Legal. Thank you so much for listening to Invisible Heat and thanks again to the wonderful listener who suggested this case. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can always reach us at info at invisibleheatpodcast.com. And guys, please, please share these episodes with family members, with friends. Give us a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow and sustain the podcast. We are also thinking of starting a Patreon for Invisible Hate. So if you think that's a good idea, send us a note. You can search for Invisible Hate Podcast on all different social media platforms. That's exactly right. Thanks again for listening. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Urgently. My daughter, thanks you for listening. You can hear her right now. We also want to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Emmanuel Monahan, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, this is Isha and I'm Asad. And I'm Sadia Khan. 